any any prayer requests tonight? I have one. Wait one second. I'm. Yeah. Emily, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go. Well, I went to my church uh, this uh, yesterday. No, yeah, yesterday. And the uh, family friend, you know, I'm, I sit in the pew and I get to know people in the pews and. Uh, uh, at church, get to know people at church. Uh, uh, Would you stop? And it's always prayer requests we, that we recite because they're a smaller church, and I recognize the family name. So when I asked her about it, she said, yeah, they had a reason. These are friends of yours or just? They're church, that's a church family friend, you know, because you go to church. Yeah, but they are friends, yeah. so you know them. Yeah, yeah I know them, and uh, I asked what happened. She goes, her grandniece died in a tragic accident where a car when they were packing to go on a trip, rolled over her. Oh, and killed her instantly in front of everybody. Very sad. She was two and a half years old. Oh. The only girl. And there wasn't baptized because, well, they're not really going to church. And I was trying to calm her down and say, you know, it's a place for everybody and she's an angel and whatever. So they're going through a very... Tough time. Say the girl's name. I don't know the girl's name. Do me a favor. Find out if you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask her next week so how they're doing. I, I, that's. I always think our prayers are more real if we can identify somebody well, to be in an abstraction. I know she was just kind of heartbroken. She had. She said they didn't even have it in a church service. They had it in a funeral home, and she said it was like. Two and a, two and a half years old. Yeah, two and a half years yeah. old. Do you know the family's name? No, it's her sister's grandchild, so I don't know the last name. But I'll find out. I'll find out. But anyway, I just wanted to put out there that they're all dealing with yep. the shock of seeing it yep. happen yep. and trying to help them get through it. Yeah, good for you. Anybody else? Got Marcy on my mind, so. Well, <clears throat> she'll make a bomb. I know. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> yes. Let's um, let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, and your presence with us through the day. Um, let me go back to my own prayer because I'm glad to do it here. Um, Father, let each one of the women present here, um, become the daughter you've given them to be. Let each of the men become the sons you've given them to be, to know you as Father. Christ, you called us to be your friends. Um, you told us we were no longer servants, that we were friends. Help us to be your friend and to love as you do. Holy Spirit, you are a gift, um, free, um, you always help without making yourself known. Um, we live in a world that asks us to do things and to our own credit. Um, help us to learn to give ourselves freely without um, holding on to the cost of it or um, so that um, people will know what we're doing. Help us to struggle to make that love real, each of us. Um, ask a blessing on Marcy with her struggles um, that her heart be comforted and um, continue to open to you in everything she does. 
I ask a, a special blessing. God, before I do, I, I can't believe this hasn't happened, but um, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let that child be baptized. Um, receive her into your kingdom. Um, um, help her family to be consoled um, in their trust in you. Um, horrible thing, but let let it be an occasion for them growing in their faith. Um, um, console them, all those people. Um, <laughs> hard to imagine um, adults surviving kids. It, it happens sometimes. They have a lot to hold on to as they go forward. Uh, be with them in their lives. Um, let them know a joy, true joy, in the hope that they will um, be greeted with a surprise when they go to heaven and see that young child fully grown become everything she had been given to be even if she didn't have time here. Um, we offer and I offer thanksgiving for the work that we do together. It's always a pleasure for me to think of all of us struggling to move closer to you together. Um, I personally take a strength knowing that we do this together. I hope that's true for everybody. Let's continue to strengthen us in the work that we do. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I, I know you're <laughs> probably... If David were here, I know what he'd say. <laughs> um, I know we've already done Simeon twice. We're going to do it again because... This last weekend, this go, go. Um, this last weekend was the presentation. I wasn't, didn't anticipate it, but it was here. So, and um, I, rather than struggling to look for a poem we haven't done, I thought just as well, because it it often helps us to go back to poems and read them because they get deeper as we do. So I'm not of a mind to treat a poem as if we know it the first time we hear it. It just doesn't happen. But also because the Russia that we're going to enter is in exactly the same state that Simeon is. It's an in-between state, and we're going to discover the cost of that. Dostoevsky's been so good in rendering it. So, song for Simeon. <coughs> Just a reminder. Yeah. Song for Simeon. Um, remember that um, the, the poet speaking for Simeon, and it's interesting, think about that. It doesn't say song of Simeon. It says song for Simeon. Um, so it's as if the poet speaks for on behalf of Simeon, but it's it's also as if he's speaking in Simeon, through Simeon himself. And what we're left with is the state that Simeon would have been in when he got the news that um, um, he wouldn't die until he saw his Savior. And he sees him. It's what all the Jews have been waiting for. Um, how many people were privileged to experience what he did? He was there at the presentation when Mary and Joseph were going to bring him for circumcision. It was, was an important Jewish ritual. And Simeon's there, and Anna's there too. He knows that he's seen the Savior. What an amazing revelation for him. But at the same time, he knows he won't be there. He won't be martyred. He knows that... Um, Jerusalem is going to rise and fall. The, the very language takes us to that point of exile where the Jews were punished. 
So he carries with him this in-between state. He, he won't enter into the Christian world as we know it. He will die in that Jewish world. He, Christianity won't be a part of the life he experiences as he moves towards his death. He's Jewish, he's seen the Messiah, but he doesn't know him the way we do. So he's aware that something is still yet to be. He's seen the Savior, um, and that's where we're left. It's that in-between state we've been looking at with uh, Marina and Simeon. And it's going to be there in Brothers Dossiers on a national scale. I mean, it's the scope of that is going to be tremendous in this book. So, a song for Simeon. Third time. Lord, the Roman hyacinths are blooming in bowls, and the winter sun creeps by the snow hills. The stubborn season has made stand. My life is light waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. Dust in sunlight and memory in corners wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. He's an older man, he's gonna die. Grant us, us, he speaks for Israel, for the chosen people. Grant us thy peace. I have walked many years in this city, kept faith and fast, provided for the poor, have taken and given honor and ease. There went never any rejected from my door, who shall remember my house? Where shall live my children's children when the time of sorrow is come? They will take to the goat's path and the fox's home, fleeing from the foreign faces and the foreign swords. Remember, Christ is the one who actually used that metaphor. The Son of Man has no home, no place to lay his head here in the world. For the time of cords and scourges and lamentation, grant us thy peace. Before the stations of the mountain of desolation, before the certain hour of maternal sorrow, now at this birth season of decrease. Let the infant, the still unspeaking and unspoken word, grant Israel's consolation to one who has eighty years and no tomorrow. Remember that Christ is the Word. Um, we know God's Word, the Father from the Old Testament, We've not yet heard the word speak once he entered time. So the timeless word is unspoken. He's taken on flesh, he's entering our world, he begins to speak to us. Um, let the infant, the still unspeaking, he's still the child, an unspoken word, he is the second person of the Trinity. He has not yet spoken to us in his human form. Grant Israel's consolation to one has eighty years and no tomorrow. According to thy word, they shall praise thee and suffer in every generation with glory and derision, light upon light, mountain the saints' tears, mounting the saints' stairs. Not for me the martyrdom, the ecstasy of thought and prayer, not for me the ultimate vision. Grant me thy peace, and the sword shall pierce thy heart, thine also. I am tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I am dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. Okay. Um, just a very quick word on Elliot looking back. We just finished um, um, several of his poems. All of them, I've told you, were written during that period of um, Eliot's conversion. He 
he converted in 1927, 1926, 27, 28 were the years he wrote. Um, I think maybe even um, Murder may have been written in 1930, I can't remember, 1929. All of these poems were written during that period of what had to have been a deeply personal crisis. Remember, he was, um, he was among what was called then, the, um, when he was born, he was born in America in what was called then um, the Boston Brahmins. They all belonged to the Unitarian movement. They'd all, they'd all turned from the traditional Protestant world. The, the Protestant um, theologies were dying out. There, there were too many inhuman things about them. Calvin's notion of predestination is just to me one of the major ones, but um, they were all a part of that Boston circle called the Brahmins. They, they identified themselves as the social elite with the elite in England. They identified themselves with the upper class, belonged to that upper class. Emerson was the great spokesman of that group. They were all called transcendentalists. You know that if you know the literature at all. Um, so they had this noble idea of themselves and the potential for man, but none of them acknowledged the crucifixion. And that's what's crucial. They were intellectuals in their heads. Um, Emerson's great essay called Self-Reliance is, um, what's the word, uh, to encourage? It's uh, to encourage humans to follow their own wills, do whatever they wanted. To be self-sufficient was a goal of his. And you know from our own faith that that's, that's absolutely antithetical to what we believe, that there's something communal to our faith, that our God is a communal, there are three persons, and we were not meant to be alone, that we were meant to do things together, that's our nature. He was um, born into that group, raised in it, and had a, um, a real sense of the importance of the elite, that educated class. He left America and, and went to England, and in these years he converted, and it's during these years that he produced those poems. The lyrics that we've been reading are, are among what's called the aerial poems, and then he produced um, he wrote uh, Murder in the Cathedral. And the only thing I want to say about Murder in the Cathedral tonight, I mean, we've, we've done it so just briefly, it seems to me one of the things that Eliot's doing in that play during this period of conversion is he's asking England to remember its spiritual roots at a time of, in England when they're losing it. The Tractarian movement has already taken place. The broad church has become liberal. It's no longer holding on to the doctrines of the church. Um, it's caused real schisms. You know that um, John Henry Newman and Gerard Manny Hopkins, the poet we read, came out of that. They converted to Catholicism. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time in which the liberal movement has taken hold and England has become more and more secular, more and more bourgeois, just like America. And Eliot wrote this play, and you can't read it without being aware that he's taking us back to a time when Christianity was in its height, to, a, uh, to a, an actual martyr's experience, and asking us to remember it. And not only that, he's doing it in such a way to make us wonder whether we're implicated in it. We talked about that, yeah? When the poem ends, the knights come out and say, we're, how did they put it? We're doing what you wanted, or, that's yep. um, not exactly his words, but the, the sense is you're, you're responsible with me for this. So. The question we have to wrestle with in that is, are, is the way that we're living our lives, does the way that we live our lives implicate us in that crime, in that martyrdom? 
Um, that's consciously, and he, he, he does that knowing that he's speaking more and more to an audience that is no longer Christian, that we're in the modern world and, and um, it's a post-Christian <clears throat> era. Um, so Elliot is standing along with a few other men, C.S. Lewis and Chesterton are among the most important men, who are apologists um, trying to hold on to a, um, a Christian faith at a time when for all purposes it's lost. The one thing that I tried to underscore when we did uh, Murder in the Cathedral was that theme of St. Stephen the day, Christmas the day, the, the, the death of the innocents the day, um, and the relation of that day to the eternal pattern, whether, whether any of us is actually living our lives um, with some sense of moving towards that still point. And I think for Eliot, um, you, you know this from uh, Hawthorne and Melville, um, that doesn't mean acting like we're among the saved, which would have been true of the, the group in the Scarlet Letter. Remember the Puritans who thought that they were saved? I, it means that we're aware of our sins and picking them up, not acting like we're above them or that we're already saved, because Eliot would not have believed that. Um, he was an Anglo-Catholic and uh, I'm sure that he would have been going to confession to the end of his life. So, but, but he's putting the question to us in the play. Uh, where are we in our daily lives? Are we doing what we can to share in um, Thomas's martyrdom? Um, later in Eliot's life, when he was reflecting back on it, he said that, his, um, that in his views he combined a Catholic cast of mind a Calvinist heritage. That's really interesting because he you know, goes back to the American heritage. The Catholic cast of mind, a Calvinist heritage, and a puritanical temperament. I think that's a pretty accurate description of the spirit behind the poems that we know. Okay, um, that's it. I want to, before we Where's this? Before we move in, Elliot, I want to. You don't have to pick up your books. You probably didn't bring them, but I want you to just hold on to this um, because I don't want to have to go back to it once we start Dostoevsky. But I want you to hold on to this quote when we look at Fyodor um, Karamazov, the father. Um, remember when the chorus was um, reflecting on the spiritual evil that had been penetrating that culture, that they could feel it all around them, they could taste it. It was inside them in their stomachs, it was outside of them in the culture, it was tangible, palpable. Um, and then they come to those lines, um, this is on page 68, if you don't have it, you can, don't, don't worry about it, we've gone over it. I've smelt them, the death ringers, now it's too late for action, too soon for contrition, nothing is possible but the shame swoon of those consenting to the last humiliation because they're implicated in Thomas's death. They didn't die with him. Um, I have consented, Lord Archbishop, have consented, I am torn away, subdued, violated, united to the spiritual flesh of nature, mastered by the animal powers of spirit, dominated by the lust of self-demolition, by the final utter, uttermost death of spirit, by the final ecstasy of waste and shame. O Lord Archbishop, O Thomas, forgive us, forgive us, Pray for us that we may pray for you out of our shame. To hold on to that, if you would, because that's the chorus 
arriving at a point where um, they're, they're involved in that murder. In a sense, they participate in it. Um, they, didn't, they weren't martyred themselves, so in some sense they gave their will to it. Thomas says, let it go, peace be with you. you it wasn't called, you weren't called to do this, I was. So it, all it does is reinforce the sense that martyrs are chosen by God. We just can't put ourselves forward. There's a danger to our own egos in doing it. But the reason I want you to hold on to it, because when we look at Fyodor, he's going to be called um, a sensualist, and a, something like an animal. He gives in to his passions all the time. And it's, it seems to me it's too easy when we read that book to single him out for his sensuality, because in so many ways, he thinks of himself as a buffoon. He presents himself as a clown. He says, I'm a sensualist. Dimitri, in the, one of the scenes I want to look at, calls himself a sensualist. He is like his father. And in that same scene, Alyosha says, I'm like you. Every one of the Karamazovs shares in that spirit. The other, the other way we can look at it, I'm going to underline this when we get to brothers, is Fyodor is an image of what we know in the Christian church as the old man. The old man. That part of us that's too attached to the flesh, that hangs on us through the, our life that we're trying to crucify as we move forward. It's not like he's worse. In some ways he is, but spiritually every one of the other characters identifies with him. That sensuality, that what Paul called the flesh, is something all of us carry with us. So I just want to say that, hold on to that, that Eliot quote, because that's the chorus of women, um, in a sense, confessing themselves. Um, we're going to be looking at something very close to what Eliot describes. That, and, um, I just, I, Eliot is so precise with his language. United by to the spiritual flesh of nature, mastered by the animal powers of spirit, dominated by the lust of self-demolition, by the utter, final, utter, uttermost spirit, by the final. I don't. I mean, I don't know why any of us goes to conf confession if we're not, if we're not confessing something related to that part of our nature. So, anyway. Okay, Dostoevsky. Um, Just a couple of things that are, I think, important to know about Dostoevsky. He was born in November 1821, and he died in February 1881. So he was 60 years old when he died. Think about those dates, 1821, 1881. He's noted as one of the greatest novelists of the modern world. I think it's fair to say of him that he's, he's probably one of the greatest spiritual psychologists of our age. And it seems to me one of the things that, um, that I'd like everybody to think seriously about here as you go through the reading. Um, I think what Dostoevsky makes clear that few other writers do, I think Melville and Faulkner, I mean, those of you who have done this will see it. Dostoevsky makes clear that people are born into a certain kind of social political world. Okay, Russia's in a period of real transition at this moment. He makes it clear that that social world is a product of men. They produced it. It's an expression of spiritual struggles of their own. So they've created it, but they're also adversely affected by it. 
The world that they lived in was, didn't appear out of nowhere. It was the creation of men. So in some sense, they're struggling with an image of themselves in the larger social political world. And the fact that Dostoevsky um, focuses on four characters, this family, only indicates that he's showing us types of people that those social structures, social structures produce. Is that clear? Um, the father is a sensualist. Dmitri is a soldier type. Ivan is an intellectual skeptical. Alyosha is a holy man. In some sense, those represent the fractures in the Russian character. And they're products of what were set in motion centuries before. And if that sounds strange, remember Plato's cave, because it shouldn't be for those of you who've been around. Remember Plato said, all of us live in cave. We all worship shadows. We give our souls to shades. Stasius said that in Dante, in the Purgatorio. The reason he was so long in Purgatory, remember he was in Purgatory for 1,500 plus years, because he was caught in the world. What drew his attention was shades. And let me put it this way. If you put us against eternity, who's more real, us or the people in heaven? I hope that's self-evident. The next to the people in heaven, we are shades. We're incomplete. And we're attached too much to shades. We live in a world of shades. That was Plato's allegory, right? All of us are in this cave. There's a fire behind us. It casts shadows in the wall. We take those shadows as real, and every one of those shadows is produced by somebody holding a book. All of us, all of us, our minds are formed by books. If they weren't, we'd be living in a closet. Because if somebody lived all their life in a closet and came out, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have words, they wouldn't have any ideas. So Plato's allegory is, is an allegory of our life. We're all living in caves. We, we treat the shades in our life as reality when they're not. The true reality is outside of that cave. We only get to outside when we begin to question. When somebody says, what is this? What's going on? What's real? What's not? And it's at that, point, at that moment when, remember, the chains that bind the people? That's Socrates. The chains fall off, and he begins to move on. He starts questioning. Where did things come from? How could something exist if there wasn't something before it? All the, all the Socratic kinds of questions. Where do we all go when it's over? So, um, so this I, Plato is really clear. We've gone over this a number of times now. Plato's argument in the Republic is this. The soul has a nature, the rational appetitive, the two sides of the appetitive, the desire for higher things, the desire for lower things. Remember, we all have minds. We long for transcendental things. But we also have a longing for physical things. The great task for men is to use their rational power to govern those physical appetites through that middle element, spiritedness or the heart or so the great task of education is to help form good hearts, good wills, good minds, good habits. And his point was, if a regime was created um, at odds with the human nature, that regime would do nothing but produce problems, create problems. Communism attempts to be a totalitarian state. It pretends that it can, can know everything about the person and even control his religious life. We broke off from England because we believed it was important for any one of us um, to practice our faith as we wanted. 
not to have a government tell us what religion we should practice. To do that was a disorder. It was a, a regime at odds with our human nature. So there's this correlation between the human soul and our political structures. In Dostoevsky, what we're seeing is they're living in these political structures. Those political structures are the product of men. They're at home with them, but in some ways, they're at odds with them. They're, they're, they're unnatural. They create disorders in the human soul, just as they do here in America. I'm trusting that everybody knows that. We live in a secular world that wants to do everything possible to get rid of God, say. Is that clear? Okay. So, um, um, Dostoevsky is known as one of the great novelists of the modern world. He's also known as one of the great spiritual, you could call him psychologists, because what he did was enter into the human soul in a, in a depth rare, but also did it in a way that helped reflect a political world to show that the two are reciprocal, that they interaffect each other, that they mutually affect each other. Uh -huh. Dostoevsky um, had a gambling addiction almost all of his life, from the time that he, I think in high school when he first um, got hooked on gambling. Um, he didn't cure, I mean, he didn't put the addiction to rest until 10 years before his death. So he had a gambling addiction all of his life. Um, he put his family into poverty a number of times. His wife had to um, do extraordinary things to help them survive a number of times. An extraordinary woman. Um, in 1848, um, so when he's still young, he was involved with literary groups who were critical of the Tsarist government then, because that was a time in Europe when all these religious wars were going on. And he was arrested and accused of um, treason <coughs> and was sentenced to be executed by a firing squad. I think it was Nicholas, um, the Tsar then. Um, and and um, Dostoevsky, um, squads of prisoners were brought out to be executed, killed by gunfire. Dostoevsky was trotted, I mean, yeah, Dostoevsky was brought out with um, three men lined up. Um, the men were ready to shoot them, and suddenly there, um, there was a commutation. The Tsar, the Tsar had planned it all along. But Dostoevsky faced this experience where he knew the next minute he would not be there. So you can imagine. I don't to call it the existential terror of it. Um, and that moment had a lasting effect on everything he did. I think it made him realize how precious life was. And in some ways, the, the terrible power that governments can wield, that a government can do that. He was involved in a literary group. These people were talking about new forms of government because the oppressions were so widespread. And all the revolutions were going on in Europe. The French Revolution had taken place, the American Revolution had taken place. All the Russian intellectuals were concerned and aware about political oppression. So they weren't plotting treason, they weren't doing anything. It was a literary circle, um, but it was enough to accuse him and sentence him to execution. Um, well, had, had the French problem. Oops, sorry? French and Russia at the time. Yeah, there, there's, no, there's, a lot of, there's almost no country in Europe right now that's not at war with some other country. They're all, I mean, generally, I'm genuine. He wrote The Poor Folk, 
the title gives it away in 1844-45, Notes from the Underground, 1864, which is looked at as one of the masterpieces of literature because it, um, how to put this, it's a dissonant voice. It's a voice from the underground presenting the world according to the way the world takes it, as if he's, as if he's describing the cave, that this is the world and people live in it and they take that as reality. But he's, he's bringing a different perspective. So it, it's one of the first modern pieces of what we would call Manipian satire. He takes a look at the real world, but from a fractured angle. And it brings into focus things about the world that most people don't see. Um, he wrote Crime and Punishment in 1866, The Idiot, 69, and a book called The Demons, um, some entitled it The Possessed, The Possessed, one of the last, next to the last book he wrote. Um, the Idiot is about a figure who identifies so closely with Christ that he lives a Christ-like life, and everybody thinks he's stupid because, think about it, he's so at odds with the world. And trying to live, if you try to live like Christ, who's going to be your friends? I mean, with whom will you be at peace? I mean, living that way is going to put you at odds with 99% of the world. So the demons in 1972 and then Brothers Karamazov in 1880, it was a year before he died. Now, here's where it gets really tricky. I've got a, I'm going to try to do an overview of <laughs> European history in five minutes. Before we go there, I hope you're still laughing, Jeannie, when I'm done. Any questions? But I'm not a I'm not a scholar in Dostoevsky's life. I don't know that I can add much. But if anybody has any questions or comments, oh, uh, I've read uh, a fair amount of about Russian culture, and uh, I had the privilege to work in Moscow for three years. Oh wow! Back in the early nineties, you should give this read a lot about the people because they were so interesting to me, and what I discovered from my reading and the experiences there is that the Russians lack the word I. I can't do anything. I need the, I need the czar. I need, I need the communists to do things. There, there's, no, there's not a take charge, get it done attitude. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> and that's throughout their history. And that's what, one of the things Peter the Great really fought against or tried to change he wanted to bring Russia into the 18th century or the 19th mm -hmm. century. Yeah. And that was his desire to get, come on people, get up and do, do something. Mm -hmm. That's not their nature. Yeah. It's a serious question for me. This is too large to mm -hmm. go into it, but it's a serious question for me how much that's true of the East in general. I'm going to come to that in a second. Yeah. Um, truly, it's, it's one of the things I think that separates the civilizations. Um, I go to other things, but, but what you're describing seems to me in some ways a, a faithful description of something Eastern. But let me wait on it here. I want to come back to it. Um, here, here is my attempt to get us to Russia with some sense of what's at stake, because if we don't see it, I think we're going to miss a lot in Brothers Karamazov. So bear with me, if you could, for a few minutes while I do this. Um, so what is Europe? That's my question. Um, and it's a serious, I'm asking it really seriously now. What is Europe? 
um, and how is it distinct from the world outside of Europe? Um, what's our conception of Europe when we talk about European civilization, something like that? And, and know in advance um, that these are going to be broad strokes and generalizations. I can't, we just, this is not a place to go into specifics. I'm just trying to, um, to present um, a broad sense of what's going on for the role it plays in, in what takes place in Brothers Karamazov, okay? So it's serving that. Don't hold me to details um, because that's not what I'm trying to do here. What I want to do is, is th throw out something that I think is important for all of us to know because of what's going to happen. And, and keep in mind what I said earlier about some affinities between Russia and America that I want to come to in a minute. So what is European civilization? What is Europe as a concept, as um, a geographical entity with its own boundaries? And how are those boundaries marked? Where are they marked? They changed. I know, I know. Even this I know. I meant for... I know. God, be patient. Remember what I just said? I tried to get around you a minute ago. Don't hold me to... I'm trying to give a broad picture here. Yes, but European Russia is different from the other part of Russia. Would you please... <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is, this is Herodotus. 5th century BC. This is how patient I'm going to ask you. This is 5th century BC. Herodotus was one of the great history. The other was Thucydides, who, who wrote his history on the Peloponnesian Wars, if you guys know anything about those. But this is our first historian. And he says this, um, in the spirit of um, trying to characterize a difference between Europe and what he will give an, another name to in a second. He says this, For Asia, with all the various tribes of barbarians that inhabit it, is regarded by the Persians as their own. But Europe and the Greek race they look on as distinct and separate. Okay? So his description is the barbarians of this ver mixed group who are not united in any way um, and a Greek, a Greek race that they look on um, as distinct and separate. So with Herodotus, at least as a historian, a, a, a notion of European culture begins to emerge, okay? okay. <laughs> Don't act innocent either. You'll accept that. <laughs> well, your reference is that they didn't know any part of the rest of the world at that point, so their, their on perspective her, was very small. Um, okay, here, that's the historian. We, hold on, come on, come on. We've read the Iliad and the Aeneid, and you know um, that um, the major sources of wisdom in the ancient world were, first of all, poetry and philosophy probably last of all, history, Herodotus and Thucydides. Um, history becomes more important in the Roman world, but in the Greek world it was the poets and philosophers. Okay, And the poets first. I've, I've made this claim before, Aristotle and Plato could have done nothing without Homer. And I, I, I hope you'll just go back to some of the things that I pointed to, particularly in the Odyssey. If you look at Plato and with Homer in mind, the cave, the metaphysical world, um, you know its origins are in the poet. The poet is the one who has that intuitive sense of deeper meanings to things. Um, he represents it in his poems. 
three things emerge in the ancient epics to distinguish Rome from the rest of the world. Okay? In the, in the Iliad, um, for the first time in history, we get a sense that the human person is worth more than the booty he acquires when that's a characteristic that defines the world at large. Okay? Your possessions. It could be a king in Persia, it could be a king or the emperor in China. Simon Weil made the argument that Iliad's a poem of force. We've gone through this. I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but the, the Iliad is about a, is a poem of force. Force of men using each other, killing each other. On women, it doesn't stop. She, and she was writing during the war, Second World War. I've argued against that. I don't think it is a poem about force, even though force takes up every single one of its pages. Um, Benedict has said, I think rightfully, that one of his concerns about the modern world is that it's lost its sense of a logos. He made that in the Regensburg address in Germany. He said that the fundamentalist world, Protestant largely in America, and the fundamentalist world in Islam, and the scientific world, have turned away from a sense of a logos, the word in everything in creation. I'm going to maintain that the Iliad is about the Logos, a notion of the Logos emerging in the world and putting a purpose and a direction and a curb on force. If you go back and think about that poem for just a second, remember, it's been, the war's been going on for nine and a half years. God, listen, nine and a half years. There's no reason to think that, poem, that war wouldn't go on for another nine and a half years. What happens with Achilles, withdrawing from that war, radically changes everything, and it changes man's sense of kleos, of honor. That's what the poem's about. And you know that in the middle of that poem, he says, when Agamemnon sends all of his gifts to bribe him back into the war, because the Greeks are losing. That's so modern. It's absolutely modern. He says, such things, such, such things I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He begins to turn towards some transcendent sense of man's honor. It's completely different from the world. And, and we've seen one of the problems, and then Achilles brings it to the surface. If a man's honor depends on what's given to him, it can be taken away. As what, that's what happened with Achilles. If it's taken away, who are you then? What Homer's showing us is that there's in, intrinsic dignity to the human person. It's about the emergence of the individual person and the burdens of it, which are extraordinary in the Iliad. So our sense of the individual emerges in Europe, it's Greek, it's a defining element of everything that happens in that culture. The Logos comes into it. If you read the philosophers, you can't, you can't miss it in it, Plato and Aristotle. Um, the sense of marriage emerges from Homer. After the war is over, what's the continuation of the story? Odysseus is home to get back to his wife and son. That takes another 10 years because the journey, the journey, remember that the great, here, that the great theme of the Iliad is Kleos, honor. Going back, Kleos, Kleos. That's the theme of the Iliad. The great theme of the Odyssey is Nostos, home, return. It's about a man returning to his family and the struggles that it takes. The word ec economy, the modern world word economy, from the Greek, ekonomos, rule of the household. 
rule of the household. Odysseus is trying to get back to home to establish rule because what's happened in 20... Take men out of your lives and a woman's raising your children, what happens? Her home's almost destroyed. She's got 20 suitors destroying her home. The whole world waits on his return for a man to come back and take charge. Um, so the great theme of the Odyssey is marriage. And you know, if you remember our, our work on the Odyssey, that this is not about economics in the modern term. Economia means rule of the house. It means establishing the rule of the home. And there's no way Odysseus can do that if he doesn't learn about metaphysical realities. That's what he experienced on his journey at sea. And you know from the reading, the, the two gravest dangers facing Odysseus were feminine. Circe Calypso. She was on, he was on Calypso's island for eight years, Calypso's for one. Calypso's an image of everything, the beauty of a woman that entices everything sexual out of a man. Circe was an image of everything beautiful in a woman that tempts him to go beyond this world. She offers him immortality. Homer's showing us that a man cannot go back and order his own home until he learns to order himself. And let, he, he, will, he will not be able to bring law to his home if he doesn't learn to be lawful himself. It's one of the great things. So the individual emerges. The, the, the family as the center of a civilization, because we know that the continuity of a civilization depends on marriage, having children, raising them well. Homer was called the great educator of the West because he was teaching us fundamental things, what it means to be an I, what it means to be in a marriage, how important it is for the continuity of a civilization to, to have a well-ordered marriage. Remember one of the last scenes in the Iliad or the Odyssey is when um, finally after Odysseus kills all the suitors, that is all these lawless men, he and Penelope go to bed and have sex. Tell me Homer was a romantic, he was such a realist. Um, and it's interesting because in that moment, remember, Athena stops time for one moment, or however long they made love, um, time stops. It allows Odysseus and Penelope both to come out of that heroic mode, constantly fighting, and rest with each other. It's a signal moment because it shows the consummation of the marriage after 20 years. And remember, part of the, part of the disorders that Penelope's facing at home are the result of men having been away at war for 10 years and leaving you know, Penelope and Telemachus to try to bring order to a home. So in Homer, that is in the beginnings of European civilization, we're, we're getting clear on the differences between this Greek, what will be a Roman world, and what Herodotus called the barbarians. Those of you, you're probably not going to remember, but in the third book of the Iliad, the opening passages in the Iliad, when it describes the, the uh, Trojans and Greeks going to war, the description was that the Trojans went into war screaming like wildflower, wild, wild fowl. Um, because they all had different languages. This was an Asian world. All the outer regions were coming to Troy to help save it, also expecting booty, because Troy was a seacoast. It's on the edge of the Turkish world. It was described as the realms of treasures, the realms of gold. There was all this wealth accumulated there. So all these outlying peoples came to support Troy. So what you've got are the Trojans, this mixed 
incoherent yelling, and the Greeks are described as quiet, united. It's like men going into battle, quiet and determined, unified. So in Homer, in this Greek world, and you know that what follows them is the, the pre-Socratics, um, all the pre-Socratic philosophers, and finally Plato and, and, um, and Aristotle. So what's emerging in this world from Homer down is the sense of a logos, a divine order that's engaging with men, helping men to become themselves, to see the importance of marriage. And what waits next is on Virgil. And you know that it isn't, so if Homer's living about 800 BC, Virgil doesn't write his epic until the last century BC, around 70 BC. Virgil takes as his subject, what? The founding of Rome. And how does he structure his poem? The first six books, oh God, have I got this? The first six books are modeled on the Odyssey, because it has to do with Aeneas' voyages. And the last six books are modeled on the Aeneid, or the Iliad, because it has to do with his battles in Italy to, to, um, to, put, to put away all the civil wars that are tearing up Italy. What's the end of it all? To found this universal, timeless city. Um, all the other cities that he attempted to found died. He was the founder of Rome, and according to the way the poem is presented, Rome will be this one city, unlike all the Greek cities, Virgil didn't think very much of Achilles and Odysseus. You'll remember that we did it. Because he thought they were too individualistic. Rome was, remember the, 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 the icon for the Romans was the sow, the mother pig with 30 piglets. The, the, the icon for Carthage, the war horse. Rome was maternal, humble, earthly. Rome was to be the city in which every single person could come, regardless of their race or ethnic background. It was the timeless, universal city. That's just before Christ comes into the world. So in the Greco-Orman world, we, um, we have a sense of Europe emerging as a nation that values the, the inherent, inherent dignity in the human being, the inherent importance <laughs> of a marriage, of love between a man and a woman, and the inherent dignity of the city, the polis. And if you know your Aristotle, you know that Aristotle said, you've got the empire at one extreme and the tribe at the other. In the empire, individual never emerges. The wall of China, or you name it, uh, the pyramids. Individuals are never named. They're just autonomous. Um, what's the word? Unnamed. Anonymous. Anonymous. Thanks, Jeannie. <laughs> God, help me, you guys. Anonymous. Is that right? In the tribe, the individual is named but they're too bound by the bloodline, by necessity. They always have to work, so there's no time for leisure. It was only in the polis, with the division of labor, because people share their work, that people have time for leisure, and in that time they can do what? For Aristotle and Plato? Think. They, can, they can philosophize. They can think. They can write poetry. It's only there that the individual can fully emerge as he is. So Europe as a continent just can't be defined by physical boundaries. It's a concept, it's a, it's a something being given to men in this Greco-Roman world that finally becomes Christian after, after uh, Virgil, okay? So that's the beginning of um, our, the European notion in its pagan form. 
Christ enters the world and what he does is reinforce everything that was learned in the, in the pagan world about man. And one of the most important things, all those thinkers took away, Homer, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle, all of them, was that there was this transcendent aspect to man's nature. He was not just an animal, he was not just human, there was something divine in him. And to treat man as if he were only human is to wish on him a disaster. Because man is not just animal. There's a transcendent aspect. He's related to a divine order. And everything, everything we've been reading from the beginning has opened up that relationship. He's not an angel, he's not a beast, he's human. When Christ takes on our human nature, all he does is reinforce that, that there's some great glory to being a human. Whatever God did in making us, it was an extraordinary thing. That gets reaffirmed, you know, in Dante, when we did the Divine Comedy. So all of this is, um, moves from Greece to Rome. You know that um, in uh, 330, Constantine moves the empire from Rome to Constantinople, the, what was Byzantine, so it's that Byzantine world. And what he does is take the seat of power east. Okay, that's in 1330. Um, and what happens ironically is it sets up grave tensions between the Roman Latin world and the Asian Greek world. And Greek and Roman powers from that point on are in constant conflict. A lot of the councils show that division. Most, a good number of the heresies developing come out of the East. And they all have this one side. There's an otherworldly aspect to Eastern cultures. The individual doesn't emerge. There's this otherworldly sense to the Eastern world. Those tensions increased. We touched on them when we did Boethius. Because remember, when Boethius was um, accused, there were tensions between um, Rome and Constantinople. He was being accused of threatening the life of um, Theodora. Theodora? Theodoric, I think, was the king. Um, and there were threats on the Eastern Empire, the, the emperor of Constantinople. So the political threats from each center, from Rome, even though Constantinople at that time was the center of the Western world as we know it, were threatening, always in conflict. Boethius lost his life um, be, because of it, even though he wasn't, he wasn't guilty of any of the things he was charged with. Islam cuts off Europe in half, largely, um, in the 7th and 8th centuries, so Europe loses something of its southern borders. Those borders are constantly in flux, but the, what I'm, I'm less interested in a literal definition of boundaries than I am a concept. What it is that define, what it has defined Europe during this time. In the ninth century, Charlemagne, who was king of the Franks, became king of the Lombards, and what Charlemagne does is sort of remarkable. He goes to war everywhere on, on European borders, and ultimately brings a un, recovers a unity that, that Europe, as, we, as I'm using it as a concept, Europe has not known since um, early Christian times, when it was already in collapse. Um, so the Greco-Roman world <coughs> has moved to Constantinople. That's the center of things. Um, that, that center, that European center, remains there in Constantinople until the 15th century when the Ottoman Turks conquer Constantinople. At that moment, that unity is broken in some degree. 
but the, the Byzantine culture is taken east into Asia and Russia. And what happens at that point, so now we're roughly 15th, 16th century, is Moscow declares itself as the new Rome. And the, and the Tsar, the Tsar, is the new Caesar. That's what that word means. And Moscow is looked at as the center, the, um, what was called the Holy Roman Empire, it was Latin under Charlemagne, now shifts. Russia looks at itself as a holy empire. So, um, and the great problem facing Russia at that point is, how do they look at themselves? Because they're receiving this inheritance from the West when they're not Western at all. And this is absolutely crucial where I'm going, absolutely crucial. Just for a moment, hold on to this. Everything that's happened in the West up to this point is organic. Nobody ever forced anything. The poets contributed their works. The philosophers contributed their works. Socrates was killed for being a nuisance, but the philosophic tradition is alive. It's alive in St. Augustine. It's alive in Boethius. It's alive in St. Thomas. And you know that what's going on in Islam is they're trying to do everything they have to keep philosophy out because philosophy contradicts their truths. Averroes is the one who first made that thesis a dangerous thing. The, the, the Islamic leaders want to get rid of him because what he was teaching was at odds with Islamic truth. He called it the two truths. That's what it's named in the Middle Ages. That was not so in the West. In the West, if you know your philosophers, Plato, and you've read them, seriously, you don't know them in your head, if you know them, you know that everything they do hints at the logos. There's, there's meaning in everything in the world, absolutely everything in the world. In Islam, it's not there. It's not there. So Averroes was not looked unkindly in the Islamic world. What Thomas did, what makes what he did so extraordinary is that he reconciled philosophy with religion, even more so than Augustine did. So philosophy's always been one. The, 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 value, the value of human, the dignity of human thought has been crucial to the West. Um, that philosophic tradition and that poetic tradition is virtually lacking, as we know it, in Russia, in the East. They've all got their separate traditions, but you don't see that kind of continuity, certainly not with the development of reason. In fact, I'd say one of the distinguishing marks between the East and Russia and the West is the West has this, I would say sometimes inordinate, but it, it loves the value of human reason. The sciences have come out of the West, the development of the sciences. East is passionate. You, if you read this novel, you can't read a page without feeling the passions of people spilling over. Reason is not a part of their culture. Okay, that's, that's the state of things up until the time of Peter the Great. Now, it's a rough overview, but it, I think in broad outlines it's fairly accurate. Here's what happens with Peter, and this is stunning. Peter the Great lived born 1672-1725. Now hold on to that just for references. So he's coming just after Milton and the English Civil War, just to, to give a frame of reference here so you know where we are. And you know that, that Europe during this period is going to be full of civil wars, religious wars for a century. Um, they're not going to stop for a century. Peter the Great was born in 1672. He died in 1725. He moves the capital of, um, from Moscow to St. Petersburg. He creates 
St. Petersburg. He tried going to war with um, the Swedes in Finland to take over Swinland. He tried going to war to the Ottomans, to the south of it. In both cases, he failed miserably. He was so humiliated by the defeat because you've seen it. The expanse of Russia is so great. He went west and he visited all the western countries, all of them. The kings, princes, the, the, the intellectuals. He, he learned from the British and the Spanish and other people how to make a great navy, among other things, arts, engineering, technology. He went back to Russia. This is absolutely crucial to my thesis here, absolutely crucial. He went back to Russia to recreate a new nation based on enlightenment intellectual modern models. So he, he wasn't allowed Russia to grow organically the way the West did. Remember, the philosophic tradition has been integral to the West. He introduces it and wants to artificially, in time, create a city, a country. The effect of that in Russia was absolutely dislocating everywhere. Um, in 16, no, so the, the capital has moved to uh, St. Petersburg and Russia begins to take on a new identity. Dostoevsky is, is born a century later. He's coming into, he's born into a Russia that's already in the throes of a kind of upheaval. In 1801, the serfs are emancipated, the emancipation of the serfs. I think it was under Alexander II. Um, and that was looked at as an enlightenment improvement because um, Europe was uh, for democracy and freedom if it was for anything. If Russia was going to catch up, it, it would have to be more in keeping with a de democratic idea. The effect of that freedom was disastrous. The, the serfs were set free. They had no money. They had no land. They had to pay rent to their landowners to make up for things. The landowners no, had, no longer had serfs working for them. They were in desperate straits. So the economic effects of that decision were to unsettling, to say the least. Um, when Peter took over, he, he established um, what he called colleges, little province, little provincial governments, each one having its own president and its own council, each one accountable to him. So what he did, and this is crucial, and that's why these debates in the first chapters about church and state, they're not gloss. That is not Dostoevsky plain. Those guys are talking about real issues for them because they're suffering from them. What's the role of the state in the modern world? Peter came along and took all these ideas from the Enlightenment world, 18th century, and wanted to create a new world. They're all intellectual, they're all in the head. So what happens when Dostoevsky enters the world is you've got all these people who, who I'm saying this really, who are lost. They want to identify with an upper class, a wealthy class, so all of them are emulating the educated. You can't read 10 pages without coming across somebody who wants to pretend that he's educated. He will, he will use literary illusions, philosophic illusions, every other sense in his speech. You can't be more pretentious than that. It's their way of showing how learned they are. And other people who are so simple folks, Grigory looks back to an ancient world. He doesn't want to leave Fyodor. He's going to remain loyal to him. So we're watching this, this Russia taken, taken into a new world and being recreated artificially along rational lines. It's, it's not, it doesn't emerge organically from its development over history. 
It's the result of a modern period, and it happens to coincide with a modern period when the state is taking on absolute powers. Because when the state emerges in the modern world, so many of them no longer acknowledge the transcendent root that's been one of the characteristics of Western civilization from the beginning, from Homer, Herodotus, Thucydides, you name it, Aristotle, Plato, Augustine. God is behind everything. So the modern state acquires totalitarian powers and its fundamental driving force is reason. But it's reason cut off from a faith. Or if it's a faith, it's confined to church on the holidays or the weekends. It is not, it is not a living, holy Russia um, that existed 100, 150 years earlier. So when we enter this book, we're entering a Russian world that is attempting, attempting to be European when its roots are not, and it's creating all this havoc. And you can watch it in the conflicts between these people, the, the social pretentiousness, particularly in Piotr. You know, um, um, but you, you, you see the effects in Ivan, his skepticism. You can see it in the quarrel in the, in the, in the monastery when they all meet and start arguing about what's the relationship between church and state. So um, it's absolutely crucial to see Russia being up, torn up from its roots and recreated along Enlightenment rationalistic ideals. Um, the spiritual cost of it is great. And one of the things I'd like to say, I mean, keep this in mind, Dostoevsky doesn't know this, but keep this in mind when you see um, a nation like Russia uprooted and then realize what happens in the next 7,500 years in the direction of communism with the writing of Marx and Hegel and the others, particularly in the, in the struggles between the proletariat and the rulers. And, um, so what I, wanted, what I really want to say in conclusion here, I mean, that's a, I know it's a, a quick summary, but um, Russia's on the threshold of the modern world exactly as America. And um, both of them represent a major change from the European world that we once knew. Lots of Catholics want to go back to that world. Lots. Um, because a lot Catholic was lost. Um, so here we are in Russia in Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky's been struggling with his problems. Remember his first novel was Poor Folk. Um, shortly after that, the serfs are going to be freed. I mean, it's a, it's a Russia undergoing tremendous change. So let me stop here. I don't want to go into this in any depth. I just want you to have a general sense of the spiritual underworld of this novel that I think is behind all these characters. If you see that, you'll have a greater sense. Fyodor is constantly making a fool of himself, constantly. Um, he calls himself a buffoon, a clown, and yet he's, he's one of the few figures who will tell the truth as it is sometimes. In his opening chapters in the, in the seminary there, in the, in the monastery, he, he accuses the clergy, the monks, of using people and he lies all the time, but he still tells the truth. Dimitri is a noble warrior type, it's like Achilles, but he quotes from literature constantly. Ivan's a modern skeptic. Alyosha is a throwback to Zosima. Zosima had a life of debauchery when he was young. He had a conversion and he went to the monastery and he's one of the holiest men in this book and probably one of the holiest men 
you'll see in all the literature we've ever read. So we're, we're looking at, at four individuals, Theodore looking to the past, the old man, and three of his sons, who, who are types of the effects of this world, these dislocations that are taking place in Russia. So that's the setting of our novel. I just wanted to make that clear. Holy Russia is fading. We've entered a modern world, and sometime in the near future, Russia will become communistic. The church will have to go underground. Sorry, sorry, on this way underground here. Let me stop for a second. I want to look at the. I want to look at some passages to get us into the book, but. Carl, what's the matter? <laughs> I'm trying to absorb this probably about yeah. 20 minutes after it was spoken, but <laughs> Peter the Great in the late 1600s and early 1700s traveled throughout Europe, saw everything, was amazed by it, took as much as he could back to Moscow and tried to implement it, not organically as you said, but we're going to do this. 1600s, 1700s. It's 2,800 land miles between Moscow and Paris. But all completely organized too. You, you don't, you don't do that, you know, on a weekend or anything. This has got to take years. <laughs> yes. It? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All I'm saying is those wow. are dislocating years for. He, he literally brought manners. Well, among other things, among other things. And even in Dostoevsky's, in The Brothers, they speak about having gone to Paris and come back and gone to Paris and come back right. like it was, you know, driving from here to Austin or something. Right. It was 20, over 2,800 miles. to do that than it does to Probably before they had <laughs> reliable rail. Yes, to all this, that. This is unbelievable. I mean, it is. It's pretty Did you have something? Well, I just, I just, I, I'll just hold off. I guess I just got a, you know, query with regard to what, you know, what's happening in the rest of the world. With, but, but, a, but one part of that is, is the development of the religious element of that. That's there. That we we've got a Christian world that exists, but we've got a development of a, of a, of a Greek. Or a non or a Russian Catholic uh, right. uh, Christianity uh, right. or Russian Christianity, I guess that's it's Russian. That's, it's that's Eastern a, Orthodox. East, all right, all of yeah, them, right. whatever it's yeah. Serbian, Turkey, right. Russian. Right. Yeah, so yeah. that that amalgamation basically has a very considerable effect. I mean, I, I think on it's all diversified. It's not unified very much. I, that's that's the aspect that, that's part right. of the problem in the east yeah but that's uh, that's the aspect of well what happened the state seems to be tries tries to amalgamate the church seems like it's is diversifying i mean or what what the hell is going on here <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't this doesn't make a you know i just want everybody to be aware of that going through dostoevsky because it's a yeah. um you know, if you read if you read America late in the 19th century, even by the time you get to Hawthorne and Melville, I mean, America is a settled country by then. You've got yeah. two major writers who are critiquing the, the the collapse of the Protestant world, North and South, and Faulkner in the um, in what he does. But yeah. you're still you're you're talking about a country that's 
been in existence for a couple of centuries. Still relatively new. America's new, but it's um, and it it broke off. It broke off from Europe, um, so it's not a fully developed in the sense that Europe was, but still more settled in some ways than than Russia at this point. But the one you know, what's happening to the the, the development of the Protestant world in that Western society is not happening to to the Eastern Orthodox. I mean, why? Right. I mean, wh why didn't a piece of that particular portion of that Protestantism migrate or get trans transcend into into the Russian environment into the East? That's just that's just. I mean, I've never never thought about too too much about that before. Can we have dinner on that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, okay. <laughs> I I've got some answers to that, but I don't want to. I don't really want to get to the book. Okay. I mean, that's All such right. a big. Okay. Well. Just, it one of the, one of the I mean one of the ways that I would put it are there elements of the Protestant world in what's going on in Orthodoxy? But let me let's yeah. wait to get to the book on okay. that. Okay, all right. Joe, did you have something to add to any of that? Well, because you had several years. Yeah, ago. I mean, up to the time of Peter the Great, Russia was kind of a closed-off country. Uh, it's also identity is mixed because it's partly in Europe and partly in Asia. Yeah, and there is a distinction right. there uh, between the two parts of the country. Um, and Peter tried to force feed the Russians to, into the modern world at that time. Mm -hmm. And he, as you said, built St. Petersburg. I mean, it was marshland. And he built a city there. It's a beautiful city. And, but he tore up the country when he moved it from the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And that disrupted a lot of the functionality of, yeah. of the existing country. Let's let's go on because I, what I want to do is just give a general sense for, so that you don't go into this just as a novel with characters. That there's a real cultural struggle and very modern, absolutely modern, and it's just crucial to see that if if we're to appreciate what what Dostoevsky's struggling with at all. Um, let's see. I want to look at a couple of things tonight just to get us going. Um, one is, we, we've been largely in an epic world in this class. Those of you who've been here for a long time. We did all the ancient epics. The major long books, narratives we did were um, uh, Moby Dick and the mm -hmm. Faulkner Trilogy, the Snopes Trilogy. And I, I mean, I treated those as novels but suggested we can look at them as epic in form because the, the poet is a spokesman speaking for a people. It's a national concern, the way it is for the epic writers. It wasn't a writer in a regional area. It's a, it's a writer dealing with something larger. When, when um, Melville wrote uh, Moby Dick, and he started off with the line, call me Ishmael. We know that that man's name is not Ishmael, that he represents a disenfranchised person. He's, out, he's an outsider. Because Ishmael was the outside one. Remember, he was the cast-off. Sarah wanted um, Abram to have a child. They couldn't have a child, so she asked um, Hagar to, to sleep with her husband, and, and um, Ishmael was the product of that union. But he was the outcast one. Isaac was the chosen one. He's the one who's going to carry the inheritance on. So in Moby Dick, I look at Moby Dick as trying to hold on to an epic past while being a modern novel. That, that's a larger, I don't want to get into that, but 
And in the 20th century, Faulkner responded to that by writing Go Down Moses. And those of you who don't know, I, the, the hero Faulkner said of Moby Dick, he said, I wish I'd written that book. He loved Moby Dick that much. He wrote Go Down Moses, the central figure in that, Ike, Isaac. And you remember from your reading what Isaac does is um, renounce his claim to the land. Because once he discovered the sin that was behind him in his, in his family, he had to renounce it. So the whole book was about the renunciation of the land, which in Faulkner's mind was the only way of dealing with slavery. Because those sins were going to go on. So it took this great sacrifice on the part of Isaac. So you've got Melville in the, in the north dealing with the outcast one, and Faulkner in the south dealing with Isaac. So those two writers are dealing with the two major covenants in our tradition, going back to the Old Testament. So there is underneath the American character this deep longing to hold on to a past while it was created in the modern world at a time when we were breaking from the church and establishing a new kind of state. Disestablishment of religion, I mean all those things that you know about. So um, um, we are in this modern world here. Um, I want to just read this about the, the novel just to help get clear on what we're dealing with here. George Lucas, who's a famous critic, said that the novel is the epic of a world that has been abandoned by God. It's an interesting to me that he doesn't say it's a world in which humans are treated without any sense of God. He says, because you know that the modern declaration is God's dead. From Nietzsche, he's dead. So his transposition of that, the novel is the epic of a world that has been abandoned by God. Another way of putting that sort of simply is, in the, in the, remember, the novel is new. That's what it means, new. The novel makes its appearance during, shortly after the Copernican Revolution, where empirical way, ways of thinking take over. So we have in the novel our empirical ways of presenting the world, naturalistic ways. Supernatural ways disappear. If you look at all the modern novels, all of them, Defoe, um, Cervantes, um, you know, all of them, Jane Austen later, Dickens. Um, Lucas goes on to say, the novel is the art form of virile maturity, whereas the epic form always retains a childlike wonder at glory that blinds it to everything irrelevant. What characterizes the novel and makes its matter make Makes, its, uh, makes it mature is its acceptance of the world in all its dissonance, turbulence, and irrelevance. Bakhtin made the point, I've made it a number of times in review with the Russian formalist, one of the most important critics in our time, um, a great critic, he was, a, he was one of the great Russian structuralists. He said that in the epic we look back to an idealized world, it's closed off, we only enter it through memory, through mimosne, sing muse, Sing Muse, The Man of Many Ways, The Anger of Achilles, The Man of Arms, those are the openings for Iliad, the Odyssey, the Indian. We go back to a world that's already closed off, it's done. So Homer can make a really, we've gone through this, Homer's form is very symmetrical. Everything that happens at the beginning is reversed. It's almost like a vase, it's so symmetrical. And it's put to music. There's nothing about it that isn't harmonious, even though it's dealing with violence everywhere. In the modern world, that's not so. We're not going back to an idealized world. 
that leaves out ordinary things. If you walk into Jane Austen's world, you go into pathways, you have tea, you sit down and talk on a park bench. You know, if you sit down in Faulkner's, you hunt a bear, you pick up a rifle and a compass. The modern novel is, um, opens itself to the open-endedness of life and familiar, ordinary things. The heroic slightly fades. If you look at the heroes of the modern novel, take Mink, or Ahab, or Ishmael. They're, they're not heroic in the way Achilles or Odysseus or Aeneas were. They're far more human. Um, the modern novel um, um, takes this world as its focus, not any way. In fact, it assumes that the gods are not present here. And we've entered the modern world. Um, so when you read, just know that part of, part of what Dostoevsky's doing is in keeping with the novel that's emerged now for a couple of centuries. I think his great teacher was um, Dickens. If you've read Dickens, you know that Dickens plays with ordinary things and sometimes making, I can't remember what it was, Gita, when you, a year or two ago now, we were talking about something and Gita was in the back of St. Francis here, if I correct me here, Gita. She was in the back part behind the glass and looked forward and saw half of her body in the glass. Describe it, can you, I can't, is that right? Yeah. What am I missing? Um, well, I was at the back, you know where the children's section is? I had my coat, it was winter, and I, and there was someone in front of me, so I could see my reflection, so it's like my head was there, and I was, you know, my head <laughs> What she described that I thought, that, that is absolutely out of Dickens or Dostoevsky, because if you go through Charles Dickens, you know there will be grotesque moments when something very familiar is twisted in a strange way to make us aware of the grotesque, what we call the grotesque. And I thought that was one of the most perfect examples in real life that I, um, because it's all around, we don't see it. I mean, if we had, you know, I think better eyes, we would see the grotesque as well. Because remember, what's at the heart of Christianity is the grotesque. Our God went to a, a cross, our God, divine, and gave himself up, crucified on a cross. I mean, the, that's the center of the grotesque. So, um, when you enter this world, remember, we're, we're, not, we're no longer in an epic world where we've been. Not, Dante's the break. Dante's the one who brings us into the modern world. He takes himself as the narrator. We're past that world. We're in an immediate world of somebody himself. Just, what, what he's saying is each one of us is a story. And he shatters that epic break. You no longer enter into a world that's already completed. You're a part of an ongoing world. That's what Dante does. It's a major change in the epic tradition. And shortly after that, the modern novel. So here we are in, in the novel, not the epic. It's a whole different orientation to the world and to the human person. We're in the present. Familiar, ordinary things, but you know from everything that goes on, the familiar and ordinary, we're in Zosima's, that would never, that would never be described. You go to Zosima's uh, little room, he describes the mat, the bed, the floor, you know. We're in a familiar world of the ordinary, um, and grotesque, strange things are going to happen there. The narrator, um, he's a remarkable person, remarkable person. Dostoevsky doesn't narrate this. If you read Jane Austen's novels, she narrates, or, or, an, or an authorial person. You don't have somebody telling a story. You do another, I mean, some of the writers do. Um, Twain has Huckleberry Finn tell his story, say, or 
Dost or um, Dickens has Pip tell his story, Great Expectations. Here we've got a narrator telling a story, and it's a it, he's not a well, he's not a character that we can identify in the story, but he absolutely knows everybody. There's a sense in which he speaks with a we. He so identifies with each person. So when he renders their speeches, he's not transcribing those speeches into his own speech. He's presenting those people speaking in their own words. So he has a love of language. Um, he pays attention. He's showing the world as he's experienced. Another way of putting this is he's internalized that world. He's taken it in. He doesn't change it to fit his ideas. That's one of the most important things. It's not Jane Austen presenting a world that she's a part of, separate from, apart from. He, he's familiar with these characters. He's experienced them as a town. He's one of them. So it's a remarkable rhetorical strategy because it allows him to be faithful to everybody on their own terms. He's not going to force those people to be reshaped according to his vision. That's really important. Um, he's done all he can to be faithful to the peculiarities of each person's language, what they do. I'm kind of following you, but give me an example of an author who does put his own, internalizes it, but puts his words or his view on something. Um, it's really hard, Mark, but let me do it this way, because... Um, well, if you can, if you can, it's fine. But I, but I mean, right no, no, I'm going to do this. But okay. so hold on. Just, it, um, if you look at Jane Austen, whom I love, if you look at Jane Austen, she's pretty faithful to her characters, but um, Jane Austen never, never enters into anything metaphysical or spiritual evil. She doesn't touch that. So her language never reaches that depth. The language that's largely her language is a language representative of a landed class. Um, she doesn't go beyond them. Uh, Moby Dick does. That's far more democratic, far more American. Faulkner does. You know that because he often gives us blacks and the, their idiom. And Dostoevsky's doing that with the whole right, serfs. I mean, we've got Grigory talking or, or Lizaveta or you know, um, Alyosha. Um, um, Piotr who's very pretentious, who's always trying to sound like he's educated. Um, Dostoevsky's doing everything he can to be faithful to a whole, a whole variety of registers, linguistic registers, what people call them today. So we, we're, we're experiencing a, a very rich, diversified culture through language and what he's doing. Um, he's not an author outside imposing a view and so compromising in some ways, holding on to his view. Um, he's open in that sense. He's presenting people. One of the interesting problems, just to, I mean, to, I don't want to go into this because it's beyond our scope here, but um, he's presenting things, um, we, we hear him presenting things as if he had access to them. That's a question in my mind whether he didn't belong to the monastery, you know. But there's no way he could have act, had act, access, say, to Alyosha's meeting with Dmitri. It was only those two men. So in terms of narrative approach, how does he do that? 
There, if you if you read Faulkner, if you're a modern, completely modern, if you're Conrad or Faulkner, Faulkner's a master. If Faulkner presents something, <laughs> he's a master. If Faulkner presents something, he's going to present it on those terms without a narrator. And if if um, if he's got a narrator, he will cover his tracks. If that narrator relates something to us to which he was not present, he'll make it clear that he got it from somebody else. Because he, he can't, here's what the 19th century Twain and the rest of them, or I mean uh, Dickens, they had what we would call an omniscient perspective. They could describe anything as if they were God. One of the reasons the moderns rebelled against that is because there's no way they could have known those things. They're not God. We're so limited to our own experiences. So most modern novelists take that seriously. They, they have to cover their tracks. It's an, epistle, it's, a, it's an epistemological question. How do they know? Most moderns say the 19th century writers are claiming more than they should have. They didn't know those things. They're omniscient. We don't have that perspective. So Dostoevsky is presenting us with a narrator who is familiar with these people. We feel like he's one of them. We're in that world with him. And he's doing everything he can to be faithful to their language, their experiences. Just leave it there. Just leave it. Okay, I want to look at some of the opening chapters just to get us going. I mean, some opening passages. So this is the world we're entering, modern Russia, or the threshold of modern Russia, or modern Russia. The beginnings of modern Russia. When there are these... Um, Great strains between people. Now, I've already mentioned one of the strains between people. That um, what 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 Peter did was make a radical break from a traditional Russia, looking back to Holy Russia, to a, a modern rationalized um, conception. And you can see the people caught. Lots of people are living on surfaces. They want to seem educated. They want to. There's a tendency to be pretentious, to seem like they, they're all-knowing when they aren't. Most of the people who do that are fools. Um, and at the same time, there are these serious dislocations between the sexes. So there's not only these dislocations socially among the different classes of people, but there are serious dislocations between the sexes. One of the ways that gets signaled to us, remember when we go to the monastery, Zosima meets with everybody, they're waiting for Dimitri. Uh, he takes a moment break to go out, and what we get is this visit with the women. And we get all the women. When he returns, he returns to the men. If you look at the two worlds, you can't see worlds more divided. The women are, are singularly in their emotions. One of them, the last one, we're going to look at that, is very caught up in her intellect, and she, she's She's, I, it's no question, Dostoevsky knows what he's doing. She's the last one, and she's the one that most resembles the men because she's in her head. She's the one who says, I don't have a faith, and, and Zosima says, you don't have faith in God? She says, no, I have faith in God. I don't have faith in the immortality of the soul. What she's doing is echoing arguments that she's been hearing from the men. So in that opening scene, he's giving us pictures of the sexes, and they're radically different. And, and as we move through the novel, we're going to watch the struggles that men and women have with each other, which are intense, to, to say the least. Um, here, let's start. Let's go to the... I'm just going to touch on some opening things and, and then stop because 
just kidding. Turn to the very first chapter. Second paragraph in our book, first page, first chapter. The narrator is describing Fyodor. And he says he was married twice and had three sons, the eldest, Dmitri Fyodor, Fyodorovich, by his first wife, and the other two, Ivan and Alexei. His first wife belonged to a rather wealthy aristocratic family, the Musovs, landowners in our district, precisely how it happened, that a girl with a dowry, a beautiful girl too, and moreover, one of those pert, intelligent girls not uncommon in this generation, but sometimes also to be found in the last, could have been married to such a worthless runt. Um, by the way, the, the translation, Constant, I can't remember the, the, the one who did the modern language translation that I read ages ago. But you know here when, a couple of times when the narrator is describing the, the woman he calls, isn't shrieking? Yeah. The shrieking woman? In the other translation was the crazy woman. <laughs> big difference. Oh, big. Yeah. <laughs> and just think, shrieking is much more um, visceral and palpable, concrete. Crazy is abstract. Yeah. So the translator in this one is trying to be more faithful to the concrete language of the characters and what's going on. Very um, He calls him a runt here. That shocks me a little bit, but anyway. As everyone used to call him, I cannot begin to explain, but then I once knew a young lady, still of the last romantic generation, who after several years of enigmatic love for a certain gentleman, whom by the way she could have married quite easily, at any moment ended up after inventing all sorts of insurmountable obstacles by throwing herself on a stormy night into a rather deep and swift river from a high bank somewhat resembling a cliff and perished there decidedly by her own caprice only because she wanted to be like Shakespeare's Ophelia. Even then, if the cliff chosen and cherished from long ago had not been so picturesque, if it had been merely a flat, prosaic bank, the suicide might not have taken place. This may seem absurd, but it's, it's the narrator's way, or Dostoevsky's way of underlining how, how taken up people are by romantic ideas that they get from literature. This girl kills herself. This guy identifies her with Ophelia from Hamlet. This is, in fact, and one can assume that in our Russian life of the past two or three generations, there have been not a few similar facts. In the same way, the action of Adele, Adele Adelaida um, was doubtless an echo of foreign influences, the chafings of a mind in prison. Perhaps she wanted to assert her feminine independence, to go against social conventions. He goes on. Um, the affair gained uh, piquancy from elopement, which strongly appealed to Adelaida um, Ivanovna. As for Fyodor, his social position at the time made him quite ready for any such venture. He goes on and on. This was perhaps the only case of its kind in Fyodor Pavlovich's life, for he was a great sensualist all his days, always ready to hang on to any skirt that merely beckoned to him. This woman alone, sensually speaking, made no particular impression on him. You've got, a, you've got a, a culture, what's the word? Not just dislocated, but given to a sense of an anonymity that people don't care who other people are. They use them. Theodore uses people. Dimitri uses people. This woman went and killed herself because of these romantic longings in her that she allegedly got from her readings of the romantic poets and Shakespeare. So from this point on, 
we're gonna we're gonna be involved with a culture that shows. I don't know how to put this. Doesn't have an identity. It's so true. That, so true that they're they're latching on to anything to give them an identity, and so often it's artificial. They'll be using liter largely literature. To, to give them some sense of an identity, who they are. And it's always, almost always in the direction of something pretentious. Um, they really are lost. Here, turn to the women. I wanna, I wanna come back to the elders, but we don't have time, but I wanna just go through this. Take a look at um, page 4344. Um, the, um, Theodore has just made a fool of himself, and Zosimus has said to him, um, don't be ashamed of yourself, because he knows immediately that the reason Theodore is doing what he's doing is because he has this deep sense of shame. Think about what happens when a culture is disrupted, and you have no sense of identity, you don't know who you are, you're on a surface, men and women using each other, because they both do, there's, there's nothing you do that you're not going to be ashamed of. There's no identity, there's no purpose, there's no social cohesiveness. So Asima tells him, don't be ashamed of yourself. And the other thing he says, don't lie. Because Viador is so good at using his mind to fabricate things. He's an image of a modern, deracinated soul. Uprooted, deracinated. Um, he, he, Zosimo leaves and he meets these women. I just want to go through them. The first one is a shrieker. And um, he describes her as being given to these emotional outbursts. And when she's taken to Mass and allowed to take the Eucharist, she immediately comes down. This is on page 47. It was then that I heard from some landowners, especially from my own ten teachers, in answer to my questions, that it was all pretense in order to avoid work, that it could always be eradicated by the proper severity which they confirmed by telling various stories. But later on, I was surprised to learn from medical experts that there's no pretense in it. That's a terrible woman's disease that seems to occur predominantly in our Russia, but it's a testimony to the hard lot of our peasant women caused by exhausting work too soon after difficult improper birth giving without any medical, he goes on and on. What you've got are modern rationalizations of her condition. What I don't know where you guys, where your minds went. I could not read this passage without thinking of the Scarlet Letter and the witch trials, because those are the descriptions of the women who were accused of being witches and crucified. She's the first woman, woman and it goes on. There are six other women, and I want to wait till next week. But I want to pick up at this point, we're starting the novel. I want to pick up with Zosimov, um, say just a little, I, I, I'm not going to go into the characters because I think you should know each one of them from the beginning. Their background, the wives, the, the fact that all three boys were shuffled off to somebody else to raise. They've all grown up with that. What I'd like to do is start with these women and look at the men and their arguments about church and state. Because that's not Dostoevsky being political. He's not, a, he's not advocating. What he's doing is showing a real concern in Russia at that moment. So we'll pick up there and, and we'll go forward. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how you know, much reading you can do. It's a long book. I think if we can manage 75, 100 pages a week, 75 anyway, I know that's a push. I'm not going to push. I'm not going to push. 
Um, you guys do, do you guys do the best you can, and um, enjoy the book. It's a really good book. Seventy-five hundred pages. I don't. We'll we'll as far as you can. Yes. Yes. South America with a with a, a laptop Carl, phone. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree. Wait, wait. Here, look, this let me. This is like world travel. I know. What's happening? I know. And, I, and I, oh yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. By the way, we didn't do this Faulkner work, but one of the works of Faulkner is dealing with a man in the South who comes to the South to create an artificial key, because he was aware of exactly what you're talking about, what Dostoevsky is writing about. The modern world is so dislocated, we are so cut off from our past, and now, and you, I mean, you just touch it, we, we've made it a million times worse, because we tend to live on surfaces with all this rational knowledge, but we don't, con we don't carry it. Here, what are the purposes of this class? Really, is to, is to carry our past with us so that it's more a part of what we do, so we're not just trapped on this surface of things. Because reason at that level goes nuts. The, mo the critics of our modern world are more concerned about that than anything else. I just want to say, we'll see you both. All the books that you mentioned, at some point I have read, and they were all destroyed. Here, destroying it. They didn't all, I didn't see it. Oh. You are bringing it where I see. Yeah. Well, they were all gone. But at the time I was reading, yeah. I didn't get all that. The you just, oh, you don't want to get me going here. Because that's the way they're presented in school. I mean, they're not, there's, there's no sense of trust, except UT. It's the only school in life. If you go to a, if you go to a college and you take an English requirement, some, some, some teacher may require half of the Odyssey. You know, with uh, I mean, no sense that yeah. that follows yeah. the, I mean, the kids don't, the teachers. You don't get that continuum no, where everything's No, not even close, not even close, not even So close. this is kind of putting, I mean, it, when you say this, I've oh, got that one too, you know, but, it, but it, like even Jane Austen, I'm sitting there going, oh wow, okay, this all makes sense. Kind of, sort of, I'm on the surface, but at least You know, but what you're saying is true. Does this for puppies? Okay. Thanay, thanks. If I we charge interest. Just okay. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. How are you? Thank are you so? Are you guys forming a literary group here? You might be. <laughs> I know. If, if you guys, if you guys get together, if she, your friend, can you start reading Dostoevsky and go to lunch? I want to hear what your conversations are. Oh my Seriously. Seriously. I want to hear what you guys are. Mm -hmm. And drink wine. <laughs> you can yeah. really make a lot of sense. Plenty, plenty of wine. Thank plenty you. of wine. Thank you. 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 Thank
did you want us when we send you the note, which I, I sent you one too? Um, were we supposed to, to uh, include whether we wanted to continue? Either. I'm going to send out a general letter okay. with you. Because I forgot to put that in. I'm going to put a yes or no. Okay. Ask people. Okay. I'm going to suggest the things we can do because there's just That's not much more I can. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to put out, I, I mentioned them in class. I East Coast, Billy Budd, and Edvis. What was the modern? We have more Edvis. Oh, Elliot. And, um, yeah, that's uh, the part. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, was that that? And, and Car you said Car 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 just yeah. that's yeah. good. That's important. I'm sure there's more. You've got to get the whole You mentioned having trouble with O'Connor and Hemingway. If there are other things you've had trouble with, ask him. Yeah. He may say, nah, it doesn't really feel so good. But he might also. Okay. I'm the loudest. That's okay. You're still here. So. He looks at it such a literary poet's mind. I'm like, do you realize that that's all? It's fantasy, and they look at it in that way. They don't look at it in reality. They bring a lot of reality from some of the insights that they have, but it's still a fantasy land. <laughs> it's not reality, and there's there's a huge disconnect there. You know. But it doesn't. But it doesn't. Um, it doesn't take away from what you learn from. No, you learn certain things, but it's but it's certain things, you know, say certain things like, you know, they know Catholics, you know, they held the philosophical traditions of the Greeks. No, they didn't. They destroyed them for almost a thousand years. The only reason we have Aristotle is because of the Arabs. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, he left, he left, he left that out. It's like, and now granted, Arabs got their own set problems. No doubt about that. But it's like the reason we have a lot of the ancient culture is because. Because yeah. they saved it. Because the church burned everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and you know the, the philosophical West. That's like you know the the, the bringing of you know the word of God and, and thought and all this stuff. Like, but that really wasn't by choice. Anybody who didn't have it, you got killed. That's kind of the way it was. That's oh, details, Mark. Details. Devils <laughs> in the details. Always <laughs> is. You know, it's like oh, they really have a choice. No, no, no. Well, you know, when you only have an hour and... Well, I like this version of five minutes. I almost busted oh. when he said that. Yeah. I was like, yeah, he's done. Right. He's done. He's in, there's going to be no other five minutes, so... Yeah. But when, when he says to our kids when they arrive at the house, can I have two minutes? And the look that passes between them as they go trudging off to the study for what they know is going to be at least 45. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can imagine. I can imagine that. So. Actually, I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I, I can sit there and I can, I can envision when your kids were younger, Bob had a blackboard, and he just made his kids start writing out everything they did wrong over no. and over and over and over. No. <laughs> now, one of our kids does that with his kids, but we never did that. Good. Now, on the other hand, when our kids did something bad, 
they got assigned um, Aquinas. They had to read from the Summa and then sit and discuss it with their father. <laughs> yeah, my dad just put us to work. Well, this is work that Robert thinks is valuable, reading Aquinas. I'm reading Aquinas, and it's, it's hard to comprehend. I can't imagine a kid comprehending it. Well, then they sit and talk with their father for an hour, and that helps them. Right. Dr. Lane is locking up. Okay. we got to get out of here. I'm already late. God. Well, you uh oh, is that they're still on? Uh You were saying we're going to look at the beginnings. It was 20 minutes after. I know. I know. That's fine.